Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about research students and their journeys in academia. My name is Imtiaz and I'm joined by co-hosts Felix and Lachlan. And today we have Ki Nahan. Ki is a second year PhD student at the School of Health Sciences at UNSW, looking at the effects of fatigue and also footwear on the energetics of running. Welcome, Key. Hey. Lachlan and Felix. Hello. 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 <laughs> How are you, Key? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Excited to be here. So tell us about your journey to where you are now. How, what did you study in undergrad? What led you to doing research and how did you land on this topic at UNSW? See, yeah. Um, for my undergrad, I did podiatry. Um, there wasn't a lot of thought uh, going into that choice. I think maybe I was not mature enough to do medicine at the time. So I thought foot school was the most appropriate. And then <laughs> foot, I, foot school. Foot school <laughs> exactly right. I like that. Um, and then... After graduating, I worked at some private practices and a hospital. Um, but I, I liked the private practice quite a lot more, treating musculoskeletal injuries, particularly with running. Uh, but I feel like I hit quite a ceiling with that job. Essentially, you know, in the first couple of years, you get competent. You are a podiatrist. But after that, it's to proceed or go up, you essentially have to become a business owner, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I never want to want to be so i went back to school um and did uh, in the states it's called kinesiology which i think is the the same as exercise physiology in in australia so yeah. i went to austin texas to do a kinesiology masters um, focusing on biomechanics and rehab for post-stroke patients mm. so i would uh help with um well, I looked at increasing symmetry of muscle activation for post-stroke sit-to-stand. So it's essentially like standing up from a, from a chair. Mm. Um, and while it was tough, especially because it, uh, it came to an end because of COVID, I loved science um, and research and found that was like there is no ceiling um, like I found with podiatry. Mm-hmm. And after completing there, I stayed in the States for a couple more years uh, working at a camping store and then moved back to <laughs> Australia, to Sydney to do this PhD, um, but this time in healthy population in runners. Um, so I'm trying to blend, you know, the newfound interest in science with like previous interests in, in running. Um, and then I'm a runner on the side as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you end up in the States? What took you there? Um, Texas has a really good department, but I'm also a dual citizen. So I was just looking at, I wanted to get, I, I feel like this is maybe a Perth mindset. I wanted to get out. Um, <laughs> and I thought that university was a really good way to live in another country um, if you didn't have a job. <laughs> totally. Yeah. How does, how does that work? Like, Because we always hear like in America, like it's just in, crazy expensive and everything. Did you have to pay like upfront? for that master's or was there like a scholarship or? Yeah, it was a little bit dicey at the start. So I did get a scholarship, but it wasn't a full scholarship. So uh, yeah, I had to pay, I had the money saved up from practicing. So I essentially spent all of that in the first semester, but then luckily in the second semester, I got a, got a free ride. And then also 
after spending enough time there, I became a, a Texas resident. So I got mm. like the local tuition. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's like, it's, it's so expensive. Mm. Yeah. How do, you, um, how do you find working in like a healthy population now? Do you think you sort of um, brought all of these insights from when you were working with stroke patients to what you do now? I feel grateful in some ways because <laughs> it's so much easier. Right. Um, why, why is that? F- uh, from everything from, you know, finding bony landmarks on the participant to put sensors or markers or um, uh, ease of recruitment um yeah just far far simpler but at the same time maybe not as rewarding you know what i mean i i i thought that um for at least for a phd even though i want to challenge myself i still want to make it you know a, <laughs> yeah, a little easier mm. um than my master's was because i ran into some pretty hard uh recruitment issues mm. trying to get the post strokes through the door um, but do I, is there a lot of transfer of skills? Um, no, I, th- I think treat the participants the same, you know, and try with the same level of care um, and, 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 yeah. And you mentioned you measured muscle activity on the stroke patients, right? Yeah. Um, can tell us a little bit about how, how you do that? Yeah, right. So we use surface electromyography little sensors that you stick on the skin that read a muscle activation um so i'm doing that for the the stroke i did that for the stroke participants and then i'm doing that for the runners as well mm. um, essentially you find the appropriate area on the muscle belly um, using some protocols and then shave the skin prepare it with some alcohol stick the sensor on um, and then you should be able to get a you know pretty clean signal of uh contractions and relaxations through whatever task you're doing. Cool. And, nice. and you measure the number or the power or what kind of things do you actually read out from that? So it gives you a, a millivolt or amplitude. And then I'm expressing that as a percentage, either of their max contraction. So I normalize it to the maximum contraction of the muscle, which I'll take earlier, or like I'll normalize it to the um, mean of the peaks of when they're running. So it's like electrical activity. Yeah, yeah, electrical reading. activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us about your PhD project. What's the, the main uh, aims and yeah, how, how's it going? It's going good. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked with how it's going so far. I'm looking at uh, the effect of fatigue on, on running, um, whether that's running biomechanics, essentially how we move, or the energetics of running, and then also the influence of footwear. Um, on those variables. So I got two studies going at the same time right now. Um, one of them is looking at the effect of local fatigue, which is essentially like muscles getting tired um, on the energetic cost of running. And then the other one is uh, how different shoe conditions affect that. Yeah. So massive running community around, around Aussie and, and Sydney in general too. Can you explain to, to all our listeners you know, what is, what is fatigue? How do you measure it? And then also what, what do you mean by energetic cost, energetic cost of, of running? What is that? Yeah. Good question. Um, fatigue is very broad scope. So I'm specifically looking at neuromuscular local fatigue. So it's by definition, a reduction in force output by the muscle. But I think we experience and consistently when we exercise, if you go to the gym and 
bust out a bunch of squats, the um, first rep versus the 10th rep, the quality of the rep is going to decrease. Maybe your ability to actually get the weight up is going to decrease. Maybe the speed of the bar trajectory is going to decrease. And all of that comes from fatigue or a force decrease in your quads and glutes and some other muscles. Yeah, so it's essentially the muscle um, getting tired and decreasing force output, which has a direct effect on performance, right? Because we need force output from the muscles to propel us forward when we run. Um, I think this is very obvious, like at the end of the Mara, there's a lot of people who are going to be running kind of funky <laughs> with jelly legs. <laughs> a lot of that stems from this fatigue. Yeah. There are a lot of other different types of fatigue though. Um, you know, you can break neuromuscular fatigue into that stemming from the brain or stemming directly mm. from the muscle and there's psychological fatigue and motivational fatigue. But um, yeah, I'm specifically looking at that, that neuromuscular local fatigue. Um, mm. And then for the energetic cost, I mean, that's essentially um, the, the energy cost of running, um, uh, which is the primary criteria dictating the way in which we move. I mean, we need energy for muscle contractions. We need energy um, for heat dissipation and a bunch of different um, processes. So, yeah, the energy cost of running, I guess, would be uh, your efficiency, okay, how efficient cool. you can run. Yeah. And is this, is this uh, similar across different exercises? So you mentioned, like, obviously running and then, like, resistance training. Is fatigue a similar, is there a similar process there or is running because it's more of a long-term thing, more variability, less yeah. control, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the overall category is the same, but the mechanisms will be different. So mm. it, it really depends on the intensity and volume of the activities. So higher intensity exercises um, will have a different fatigue mechanism to low intensity exercises. And that's for running and that's for cycling and that's for weight training as well. Mm. And that's going to affect, um, the, well, if a different fatigue mechanism will cause a different fatigue uh, recovery profile. Um, and that means the, how, the onset of the fatigue and then when, when we can return to normal force output. And so it's a reduction in force output when you're trying to increase or when you're trying to maintain, but you're not actually able to. I kind of, I'm interested is, is this like, I'd love to know like the molecular me mechanism behind that, mm. but then also is it sort of like a, a feedback from your brain saying, you know, stop, otherwise the muscle is going to really hurt itself. It's kind of like a, I don't know, why, why do we fatigue it in like a big question? I don't know, like philosophically. So I don't know <laughs> is either. It, is it like <laughs> That's this, a good question. Yeah. <laughs> we, we actually, we shouldn't be allowed to go any further. You have to. It's like a built-in feedback mechanism or something. So I think with the, the molecular mechanisms and then the, like the central brain mechanisms, they're both happening at the same time. Um, and then you can actually pass the two out. So I'm not mm. doing this, but smarter than pe people than me are. So wh <laughs> when we measure fatigue, at least this sort of neuromuscular fatigue, we'll take a maximum force um, measurement from the muscle, right? So if we're measuring uh, knee extensor or quad fatigue, we'll do a knee extension task, uh, isometric, so you're not actually moving or the muscle length isn't moving. Um, and you push as hard as you can for five seconds, we'll get a torque reading. And then, you know, you do a lot of squats, you do that maximum contraction again and any decrease 
in that um, maximum torque level or force level is, is mm. fatigue and you can quantify it that way. But if you also introduce electrical stimulation to the muscle while you're doing your maximum contraction, you can start to pass out the source of the fatigue. Mm. So if you're, um, I guess like they call it uh, the volitional con maximum contraction, so no electrical stimulation, if that torque level is the same as your maximum contraction when there is electrical stimulation, you would probably conclude that most of the fatigue is coming directly from the muscle. Mm. But if the electrical stimulation um, contraction is uh, has a greater torque uh, measurement than the volitional contraction, then there's probably some sort of brain interference. And that would be defined as central fatigue. Kind of mm. like what you're saying. It's like the pulling back, the, the brain's pulling back on the muscle to maybe stop injury. Does, does that then, then kind of leading on to that, could that then explain those sort of situations? Or like the classics one is like, you know, like a car is under, like a baby's trapped under a car <laughs> and you just surge of adrenaline and, you know, you lift it up or there's that like, I don't know, there was that video going around for a while of that like weight, the, the weightlifter who like his wife died before the Olympics and he promised her he'd win the oh, gold yeah, medal the and, you know, oh, yeah. then he got, got the, the gold medal. Is there, that, does that also feed into where... Mm we're able to then override that and go, no, I am going to do this thing, you know? I know you probably don't have an answer to that, but it's a fun <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like, just yeah. like thinking of, you know, people lifting up cars <laughs> in that situation. Um, maybe. maybe. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I, I guess like what, what would be the scenario that allows you to override your brain's interference and fatigue and lets you to continue with the contraction, even if it may cause an injury. Mm. Um, yeah, something pretty hectic. I don't know. It's interesting because like are, are fitter people then just better to stop, like better at stopping those signals or, or are they, I assume it's the latter but, or both probably, but like uh, physiologically they're not producing the byproducts of their muscle, uh, you know, movement and metabolism. So I, that they're not actually having the signals come back up to their brain, which yeah, then yeah. comes back down. I think, um, you know, we're taking like pain measurements and a bunch of different subjective measurements at the same time during these fatigue protocols and the run. And I, I have no answer to any of this, but I think there's like an interesting um, psychological relationship with fatigue and effort and pain. Mm. And I think maybe people uh, have a able, you know, ability to... Um, change their relationships with these sorts of sensations and perhaps um, change central fatigue or, or, or lift up a car when they need to, <laughs> things like that. Be handy. Yeah, yeah I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> if you need anyone to be trapped under the car, I'm happy to, I'm happy to volunteer. So tell us about your, uh, your other part of the project. So how does um, footwear kind of mm. foot into, fit into this whole... Foot into, uh, into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've always, I, 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 I'm trying to keep like a link back to podiatry because I don't practice anymore. Mm. Um, and I think footwear prescription was my favorite part. Huh. Uh, I think it's like a nice nerdy little side interest <laughs> that I've kept. I mean, that camping store that I worked at, I was selling shoes. <laughs> um, and footwear has been looked at in running quite extensively, but mainly through a metabolic energy lens, right? Um, recently, well, not in the, in the last five years, there's been big um, breakthroughs in fancy mar uh, marathon shoes that can reduce the energy cost of running and make you run faster. But I think that 
a lot of the science has overlooked the influence on the muscles themselves. Um, they've kind of bypassed analysis of muscles and gone straight to energy cost. Uh, just because f fatigue or muscle activation and energy cost of running is so intertwined, essentially the energy cost of running stems from active skeletal muscle. So I thought that introducing a shoe condition and then looking at this overlooked kind of muscle interaction would be pretty fascinating. Also combined with like just a lot of anecdotal evidence of runners wearing big, thick, cushioned shoes and saying their legs feel fresher the next day or less beat up. Hmm. Um, that would be a nice question to explore. So thankfully from ASICS, they've given us two different um, pairs of shoes. One a more traditional kind of uh, anatomy of a running shoe and then one a thicker, um, more stiff, uh, modern running shoe. Um, and then I'm looking at uh, how they affect uh, fatigue of a particular muscle group during the run. So I'm introducing fatigue pre-run, um, having them run, and then I'm measuring fatigue afterwards. So actually measuring fatigue before and after the run and looking at the um, effect of the shoes. Um, Jury's not out yet, though. Right. <laughs> so how can... I, I recently started running myself and, I, and just socially with a, a run club. Uh, shout out Furies. And <laughs> I went to the shop and I went to buy runners. And this guy was like, here, you can have these. These are the best, but they're banned in like, you know, all these races. You can't wear them in these races. And it made me think, I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah, you can ban a shoe <laughs> yeah, from a race. Like, yeah. is it that important? How, how actually, like how much can a shoe do and and how is it is it, what, what's the biomechanics behind that i guess mm. i mean it's disappointing i went to the footwear biomechanics conference recently and essentially the first couple days we're just trying to figure out how these shoes make you run faster <laughs> and we know they do or they can to most uh but we have no, no idea there's there's speculation i'm assuming he whipped out a pair of these fancy super shoes um, they got famous when Kipchoge broke the two hour marathon, mm. but so they reduce released his name's Wouter who came He had a pretty, um, pivotal paper that showed that these, uh, super shoes, the, the vapor fly 4% can, uh, reduce energy costs by 4%, which transfers into a, uh, increase in performance, um, of a, of a certain percent. The two don't. The energy cost and performance don't um, track linearly, but, you know, it has a, a major effect on it. But so essentially the shoe is like a thick bed of fancy foam that squishes down and then repels a lot more than uh, any other foam that's been introduced. And then it's got a stiff bit of carbon um, throughout the sole to make it quite stiff, right? So you can't bend it. So I th we believe that it's like a combination of the two, a curved carbon plate and then this kind of compliant and resilient foam um, that ta probably takes some of the uh, effort away from the muscles leading to less energy needed to prepare yourself at a certain speed. Mm. So adds a bit of pep to your step. Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big yeah, peppers. Nice. Um, <laughs> which is probably what I want to look at in my third study, right? So um, I'm thinking that muscles have a big deal in this kind of uh, energy shoe hmm. mystery. Um, so that's what I'm going to be looking at. Hopefully those band shoes um, and uh, yeah, looking at the fatigue influence or muscle activation influence. Hmm. So is that, that's doing your uh, electrical readings 
on muscles when people are wearing these shoes and when they're not. Yep. But I'll, I'll fatigue. So essentially I'll have you run, uh, uh, unfatigued measure metabolic cost and the muscle activation through the EMGs. Then I'll fatigue you up, uh, in a specific muscle group mm. so I can know where the fatigue is exactly coming from. Cause if I just had you run, we don't know where the, if the fatigue could be in many different places. It could be changing consistently. So if I introduce it to a specific local muscle group, I know exactly where it is and then mm. what the compensation mechanisms are and then have you run again. So I do a lot of calf raises or do a lot of knee extensions, measure the fatigue back on the treadmill, measure metabolics, measure the EMGs of muscle activation and compare before and after. What do you think you'll find? Well, what I'm finding right now, not with the band shoes, but others, is that there's an increase in metabolic cost with uh, knee extensor fatigue, so the quads, but not with the calves. And that's kind of confusing to me. And I'm not, I haven't found a lot of significant differences in the muscle activations, even though... I'm fatiguing those muscles and I'm measuring the fatigue and making sure it's still there, mm. which is kind of confusing to me, but more analysis to come. Is there much on barefoot running? I know that's like a, that's like a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, my short stay in footwear science, it seems to like ebb and flow with certain, you know, major trends. So in 2010, I believe barefoot running came a big thing. All like minimalist, minimalist shoes. Um, essentially from like, uh, evolutionary science that we would, you know, we didn't have shoes back in the day and we ran a lot. They, uh, reduce the load, um, on the knee and then increase it in the ankle. And they also can make your feet stronger. Um, so I don't think it's a case of like better or worse. It's just different. Mm. Yeah. Compared to a, you know, standard shoe. And now it's flipped all the way you know, from 2010 to 2023, now we're talking about like 40 millimeters of super foam with a carbon fiber plate. And um, so it's pendulum swung the other way. <laughs> I always found that interesting. Like I, I have the same, this is probably a really stupid opinion, but I, like with F1 driving, I always think, why don't they make them all drive the same car? Like, you know, get it down to the, the, the driver behind the wheel. Should we, should we maybe introduce that in marathon running? Like, you know, everyone gets the same shitty pair of vans. I think that, you know, you, you, you had that comment before, this is the band shoe. So mm. this is a big topic, like, three years ago when Nike was the only one with that super shoe. So they came out for it for that breaking two event and um, all the records were being broken. Many records were being broken in those shoes. And there were also like famous cases of professional athletes from other brands using Nike's shoes, but taking off the branding mm. um, during the race, which is like awesome for Nike. In that period of time, I think all the other major shoe companies have, um, somewhat caught up, right? They've got their own super shoe or advanced footwear technology mm. as it's sometimes caused, uh, called the, um, yeah. And back to your point about the band shoes. Um, yeah, this is also like a, Nike has such like a big control over athletics is that people were getting kind of ticked off that, you know, Nike 
athletes had the super shoes and they didn't. Um, and they actually had a, you know, a metabolic uh, performance benefit with those shoes. Um, so they introduced laws into world, world marathon, but they, uh, they outlawed shoes that were over 42 millimeters of, uh, of foam or <laughs> stack at the bottom, which is exactly what the Nike super shoe is. <laughs> so, you know, they were like anything above that is banned. Mm. Um, anything below that. So all Nike shoes are all right. fair go. Yeah. But I mean, like for a nerd like me, I just like the cool advancements. But, you know, maybe if I was a running purist, I'd mm. get pretty fired up. Mm. Uh, on that, I guess, you, so you're a marathon runner yourself. How do yeah. you find bringing your research that you do in the lab to your own sort of training? Uh, do you do that or, or is it all sort of work and play for you? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I try to, I, I, I do do it a lot, but I need to kind of chill out because I feel like it <laughs> takes out some of the fun for the running. Mm. Um, oh, I'm absolutely obsessed with running shoes. Like I've got many, many pairs and I kind of rotate them mm. to, you know, fit the needs of the run and, um, you know, different foams for different sorts of runs and stuff like that. Um, I guess most of my research is not on, it's kind of like foundational experimental research. So looking at the effects of a specific muscle group on metabolic cost probably needs a couple other studies to tune it specifically to making runners run faster or decreasing injuries. Um, so I'm not applying a lot from that. You know what I mean? I know knee extensor fatigue decreases metabolic cost. I guess the answer right now is just run more, <laughs> get more fatigue resistant <laughs> knee extensors. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm thinking about it all the time, especially like the, the mechanics of running. I think that's pretty interesting to think of while running, you know? Mm. Yeah. Weather's getting better and there's notably more people out running. <laughs> so you can imagine there's lots of people heading out to footwear stores, right? Have you got any advice for people who are starting out on their running journey with regards to, to footwear? Do's, oh. don'ts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Uh, How much of the, does the super shoe cost? Because that's obviously the, the, best, the best one. <laughs> yeah, so much. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. More general, I guess. Um, so probably go to a store and get fitted for a shoe so you can at least try them on. Um, this is a bit of a, a, a letdown, but the biggest indicator of success in a shoe is just comfort, yeah. which mm. is kind of a hard thing to define. Um, but that's got the, um, you know, uh, best correlations with performance and enjoyment of the shoe and mm. decrease in injury. Um, the specific categories of shoes are a little bit arbitrary. Um, so I would go with, you know, go to a store, uh, get the clerk to give you a bunch of different shoes to side. Um, hopefully there's a treadmill that you can run in cause you know, walking in the store versus actually running pretty different task mechanically. Um, and then just get the one that's most comfortable. Um, and all swaggy. Yeah. Swaggy is <laughs> important as well. <laughs> and then, uh, also buy a couple if you're trying to amp up the K's, because I guess one thing is that if you have more than one shoe, it's going to decrease your, um, likelihood of injury. Oh. Uh, just like running over hmm. different surfaces, um, with different intensities and different volumes. Uh, well, 
increase the you know variation of stimulus and decrease the chance of injury running in different shoes is the same so get a thick shoe and a, and a less thick shoe and a swaggy shoe and a you know old <laughs> pair of vans maybe not an old pair of vans but like a daggy shoe and you know yeah um diversify the collection it's mm. interesting i had a, a question um i got a little bit more time the episode i was interested about um the different type of and i know nothing about this but the different type of like muscle fibers so there's like the different like like you got like the fast twitch and then whatever the other one's called what's the other one called it's like sure great yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense um uh the people that tend to have like certain certain muscles and they're better at, at running like is there is there a way that you can like develop those because i assume running you, you need to have like the the slow twitch ones can you develop those through through running or is it just one of those things like genetic lottery like you you're born with a certain muscle fiber yeah you can definitely change the weighting of muscle fiber type yeah so i guess the two you know main categories is fast twitch and slow twitch um different muscles have different percentage weightings um but i, I was reading a study not too long ago yeah, it was a 13 week marathon training course they did a my muscle biopsy i can't remember which muscle but it did show significant changes towards slow twitch with the uh with the marathon with marathon training which which i assume would be a lot of low intensity running um but yeah definitely changeable but i think once it gets to like the top of the mountain high performers uh you know professional marathon runners will be given genetic gifts of high type one slow twitch fibers and sprinters and power lifters are going to be you know jacked up with fast twitch fibers mm. but definitely plastic mm. is that because the slow twitch ones use less energy or something so is that you conserve your energy over the whole marathon yep absolutely um and yeah they're less fatigable as well smaller uh more efficient less fatigable yeah um, Less so force as well. So if we go back a few steps now, back to masters, you had a bit of biomechanics in there. You looked at um, EMG, muscle activity. Was that your first sort of real love of biomechanics? And is that what led you to here? And then how did you end up here at UNSW? So you were with Dr. Kirsty McDonald. Um, how did that relationship get struck up? Yes, yeah, so... I remember going first day of class in Texas, which is a biomechanics class. And then I realized I didn't know the definition of a force. I dropped out of physics in year 10. <laughs> I was terrible at math and I was stressing. Um, so I, I hated it initially. I thought it was so hard. Also like introducing, uh, you know, coding. Uh, I didn't know how to use Excel as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I liked the... The, the answers that you can get from biomechanics. Like I love the analysis of movement, essentially like whether it's running or not, analysis of movement's the game that I like. And then I thought, well, if I want to be in that game that I got to learn the tools and um, if it is maths and biomechanics, so be it. And then I learned to like it quite a lot. It's a lot of cool gizmos you get to play around with. Like um, my study right now, the only real link to biomechanics, well, the main link to biomechanics is the muscle activation analysis with those sensors um 
but you know other tools we use is 3d motion capture and force plates that you could walk or run over or instrumented treadmills so i used those in my um masters uh and then i will be using it for my third study as well i mean i would have liked to get that going for this current study but i broke them uh, <laughs> and <laughs> And also, like, my DIY motion capture system in Wallace Worth was, like, a big-time tripping hazard. So we'll save, uh, that. We'll save that for study three. Um, or somebody broke them, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, but, yeah, so, yeah, I definitely got a taste of biomechanics uh, and liked it. Um, and then I found Kirsty on uh, a forum, just a biomechanics forum, Biomechel, um, who is she was posting up a PhD in gate. So I didn't have any really plans to move back to Australia, but in the middle of 2020 in Texas, moving back to Sydney was pretty enticing. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and I had never been to Sydney before. I'm from Perth and Perth and Melbourne. Uh, so that I, if I came back to Australia, it was exciting to move to somewhere I'd never moved to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kirsty's great. She's uh, originally I was going to do walking research, and then she kind of found out that I was into running and shoes, and um, really helped me go after those interests. So definitely appreciate it. I was like hearing about that because I think in, I guess maybe in the medical research space, the projects kind of exist, and then you apply for them, and then you you do that project. But I like hearing about it. It's often kind of more common in, in, in the arts and humanities and things where you have like a passion and then you're like, you want to do this thing or maybe you can sort of like tailor the project to what you're interested in. Um, I always think that's that's a good way to do it because sometimes you meet people and they're doing their PhDs and you're like, so what are you doing? You're like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, want yeah, to do yeah. it. God, what a I'm bummer. You know, <laughs> they started off liking it, but then later on they're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so if you have a passion in it, you know, I guess. Skin in the game. Yeah. Actually, maybe that leads back to the, well, that leads into the okay, classic question we always ask here. Do you, do you have any advice on where you are now that you would give to your, your past self? You can choose how, how long ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Failure and mistakes are going to happen and don't take them to heart so much. Um, and then also when they do happen, maybe have a outlet to gain some perspective and realize that it's not the end of the world. Like whether that's like a good group of friends that are not just big science nerds or within the university that you could turn to. And if, you, if your machine breaks, they can just kind of, <laughs> you know, chill you out a little bit. I found that initially when all these things were going wrong with the research, yeah, I did think it was the end of the world. And now I look back and they're still going wrong, but I can take it in my stride <laughs> because, you know, I've, I've relaxed and taken some perspective on the whole thing. That's great advice. Yeah, that's probably, that's definitely probably what I would just relax, dude. That's probably what I would tell myself, <laughs> big baby. <laughs> And so you're you're about halfway through now, PhD roughly, but more yeah, than that. Yeah, hopefully I can knock it out in a year and a half. Yeah, like these two sh studies, at least I've got one more person I need to collect. Um, yeah, for data collection, and then hopefully wrap up Hunt that. Them down. Yeah, I'm after them. I'm <laughs> after them. Well, shout it out. What are you? Who are you looking for? 
Uh, I'm looking for healthy male runners who can run a 10K in less than 42 kilometers and run 40Ks a week or more. So if you're out there... There you go. And you what, know, what, what kind of benefits would they get from this? Good question. So <laughs> I've got a $50 Myers Corp. Ooh. <laughs> Myers gift card there's another store attached to that as well i just can't remember what and then because i'm collecting all this nerdy mm. uh you know performance related um uh information i'll whip up like a unique performance report of like uh your fatigability and your energy cost in response to shoes and things like that no that's pretty nutty and post phd any ideas or still not so sure and taking it as it comes Probably go do a postdoc somewhere. Oh, there you go. That's the plan. Yeah. 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 I feel like I've asked a lot of people in this department. I feel like I'm the only one holding strong to academia. <laughs> um, but uh, if like a, a research position in a sporting goods store uh, or not sporting goods store, sporting good company or a footwear company came up, I'd take it. But mm -hmm. I think that's pretty far and far and few between. So mm -hmm. I'm uh, happy to go after academia if I'm allowed to do what I want, like yeah. research what I want. I think yeah. creative control is more important, like the, mm. the top of the list for me. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Thanks so much for the, the chat. I think pretty much that's us to wrap up. Yeah, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't ramble too much. No, no, no. no. We, we love the ramble. Yeah. 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 The whole point of the podcast. And hopefully there's a few runners out there listening. Um, and how do they, how do the runners find you? We can put um, Key's details in the, the podcast episode. Mm -hmm. um, easy other find? Twitter? Uh, yeah, on Twitter. K-E-Y dot N-A-H-A-N. There you go. Twitter or X. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I can also give you guys a copy of my flyer and there's a um, yeah. QR code. Cool. Also, if you're on UNSW, I kind of post them up everywhere I can find. <laughs> mm. yeah. I think I've seen those actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're you, the one taking yeah. them down. Like you've done one weight training study <laughs> with the school. I'm, you've been you're into running now too. You can uh, get into a running study. I'm sure you could. Sure, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Key. And to our listeners, uh, tune in soon to um, our podcast at either Spotify or Apple Tunes. And we'll uh, chat to you next time. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys.